Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. I'm Lindsay Burke. I'm the director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. For several weeks now, Americans have been dealing with the health and economic impacts of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus. And just over a week ago, states began closing schools en masse. The coronavirus has had a major impact on education. Today, Education Week reports that 47 out of 50 states have closed schools, and many districts have closed in those remaining three states, shuttering 124,000 public and private schools, affecting more than 50 million students across America. And that has meant that for families across the country, we are all homeschoolers now. So in that spirit of virtual learning, today we have a great webinar featuring panelists from public and charter school sectors, from the private school sector, and from the homeschooling sector to share their wisdom and tips as we navigate schooling from home. But before I introduce them, I'd like to point out a great new resource the Heritage Foundation has created, the Curriculum Resource Initiative. And you can find it by Googling Curriculum Resource Initiative and Heritage. When you do that, you will find science and art history lessons curated by the Smithsonian Institute for younger children, math curricula in grades one through eight, lessons on space exploration and computer science, among many, many other resources. And for older students, you'll find lectures and resources on constitutional self-government from the Ashbrook Center, lectures on history and political theory from Hillsdale College, lessons on economics from Marginal Revolution, courses in logic and rhetoric from the University of Dallas, and courses in history and government and economics from the Bill of Rights Institute, among dozens upon dozens of other resources. So definitely check out our curriculum resource initiative. And now I have the pleasure of introducing our, pan uh, our panel. And after they speak, we'll take questions from our viewers that you can submit. So we'll be watching for those questions online and then submitting those to each of our panelists. So first I'd like to introduce Carrie McDonald, who is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom and an education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. She is also the author of Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside of the Conventional Classroom. Then we'll hear from Sam Sorbo, who is an actress, host of The Sam Sorbo Show, a homeschool activist, and author of They're Your Kids, A Personal Journey from Self-Doubter to Homeschool Advocate. Then we'll get to hear from Robin Lake, who is director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education, where she researches evidence-based solutions for K-12 public schools. And finally, we'll get to hear from Derek Max, who is executive director and principal of Cornerstone Schools, a Christian school serving children throughout Washington, DC. So with that, I will hand it over to Carrie. Thank you, Lindsay. It's so great to be with everybody today and talk about how we are all homeschoolers now. I think um, the first thing to acknowledge, of course, is that this is not typical homeschooling. Uh, most homeschoolers would tell you, for instance, that they spend more of their time outside of their homes than inside of their homes, being immersed in their communities, in the people, places, and things around them, gathering in groups, going to the library, going to classes and museums, and of course that's not happening. Uh, so I think that's the first thing to acknowledge, that this is um, an artificial version of homeschooling that of course we're all forced into. 
Um, but I think it also can give us a glimpse of what education without schooling looks like in some ways. And this is where uh, my primary piece of advice to families who find themselves suddenly thrust into living and working and learning alongside their children cooped up in their homes is to take a step back and just exhale, reflect on what really is uh, an extraordinary experience for all of us, very stressful for parents and children alike, and to avoid the tendency to jump right in to trying to replicate school at home. I mean, I think it's an understandable reaction that we would want to return to some sense of normalcy and routine, but of course, nothing that we're experiencing is at all normal or routine. And I think it's important just to recognize that and, uh, and, and step back a little bit from feeling like you need to be the teacher and the curriculum enforcer. Uh, that could cause parents to burn out. It could cause everybody to get more frustrated, um, tensions to rise in, again, what is really a stressful situation for everyone. So one thing that's really interesting um, from a policy perspective is we're seeing a lot of states um, sort of uh, moving away from compulsory attendance requirements and saying that the rest of the school year, for example, won't count in terms of compulsory attendance. We're seeing some states saying that any curriculum that's being sent home um, from the schools won't, will also not count, will not be mandatory, it will be optional for enrichment purposes only because they can't guarantee equal access for all of the students who are uh, learning at home in terms of technology resources and connectivity. Um, so what I think that does though is present a real opportunity for families to disconnect from this sort of standardized schooling environment and instead really get to know their children uh, in ways that might have been difficult before when we were always on the go and always focused on our activities. And this way we can move away from that kind of schooling mentality and explore these incredible online resources like Heritage's new curriculum resources as well as the many other organizations that are coming to the forefront now and putting out extraordinary content, content that you used to have to pay for to access is now in many cases free. Um, you know, obviously Khan Academy is the virtual learning uh, tool that's probably the leader in free online resources, but they're offering more resources on how to sort of organize the day for kids. Um, you see companies like Varsity Tutors, which is an online tutoring platform, offering their services for free uh, that would typically have to be paid for. And then of course, 2,500 museums around the world have virtual tours that you can access. Libraries um, are putting a lot of their, more, more of their material online as well with lots of links. So it's a great chance for parents and children to learn alongside each other and discover um, all of these different uh, resources and tools and maybe be open to new opportunities and experiences that they wouldn't have otherwise had the chance to do um, in kind of a typical standard schooling environment. And my sense is that, um, that this is going to lead to more families uh, pursuing alternatives to school. You know, certainly most families will be so thrilled to get back to their typical routines. I think all of us will be glad to when this is over and things return to normal, but there will be some families who found that family togetherness, uh, that different way of learning and living together to be really appealing and will want to pursue homeschooling or virtual learning or some of these other alternatives to school uh, even post pandemic. That's great. Thank you, Carrie. Really fascinating. And you bring up a good point about the number of families who might want to pursue this long term. Of course, we don't know exactly what that will look like. For many families, they'll say, homeschooling was fantastic. I want to do this longer. Uh, for other families, it might not be the right fit. They might return to their prior schooling arrangement. It might not fit for their work schedules. But it will be very interesting just overall to sort of see what happens long term. Um, just by way of context, right now we have about 1.6 million children across the country who homeschool. That's about 3.3% of the overall K-12 school age population. 
So it'll be interesting to see uh, what that number looks like. You know, a year from now, did it have an appreciable uptick as a result of families across the country now getting a taste of schooling from home? Great, thank you, Carrie. Sam, we'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you. Thanks, Lindsay, for having me, and thanks to uh, Heritage Foundation. And uh, I'm excited to learn about that curriculum that's online now that's available for free. Um, so I want to start with, uh, first of all, I agree with almost everything that Carrie said. In fact, I don't know that I disagree with any of it, except um, I'm a little bit even more optimistic, I think, that uh, that families will discover the joy of home education because I think that when we see these public schools um, not sending curriculum out, not sending stuff to the families and literally sort of just cutting them loose and saying, you're on your own for the next several weeks until we figure out what we're gonna do. Um, I think that that, is, that causes some suspicion in the families. Um, I'm hoping that it causes some suspicion in the families. Why is it that they don't know what they're supposed to be teaching next week? Why is it that we have to wait three weeks for them to get their stuff together so that the teacher can email me? It's not like I'm not already emailing with the teacher. So as a parent, I'm looking at that and going, huh? And then also as a parent, I, I'm encouraging, by the way, I'm doing a ton of videos right now and just trying to get the message out because I am a homeschool advocate, but I'm also an education activist. I think we need to rethink the way we define education, really our entire approach to education in the United States, because basically our education institutions, the government education institutions are not getting the job done. And, and yet they're uh, very good at this whole college prep and career readiness idea. In other words, they gear us to be prepared to pay a lot of money to college, but does college actually get us our careers? Not so much anymore. So we need to take a step back and really rethink our entire approach. And I think that this, the coronavirus, sadly, but but fortuitously, has provided us um, not just an opportunity, but the impetus to, to look at this. So I'll share with you quickly. I got an email from a parent who's been watching my videos on YouTube, and she happens to be a, a, a school educator. She's trained to teach grade school. Uh, she has a young girl in, in uh, kindergarten, and so they're home, and she's been working with her daughter one-on-one, -on -one, and she says after a week and a half, she feels like they've made more progress than her daughter made the entire school year thus far, and so she's now really considering something that she never would have considered before. Now, mind you, she's a trained educator, but never considered that she might be capable of teaching her children at home, which ought to raise some suspicions in us. Why is it that somebody who is educated within the system and is educated to be an educator doesn't feel capable? And my whole part of my whole message is you don't feel capable of educating your children at home because you've been taught that you're incapable. In fact, that seems to be an overarching message of our education bureaucracy is to, to make you aware of how inadequate you are is to make you uncertain of how well you could do. And, um, and they're very effective at that. I didn't think that I was adequate. That's why the, the subtitle of my book is um, An Inspirational Journey from Self-Doubter to Homeschool Advocate, because I was a self-doubter. I didn't think I could get it done. And my kids are now, uh, I've got one graduated high school and the other two are up and coming. And they're thriving because the homeschool paradigm is to, uh, teach the child to teach him or herself. Um, and so we have to rethink the way we think about education. It shouldn't be somebody standing at a blackboard, writing on the blackboard, showing you what to do and, and, and force feeding you sort of snippets of knowledge. It should be somebody engaging you to think and to learn. Um, so this, this teacher wrote me and she said, I'm, I'm worried and I don't know how to go about it. And I, I don't think that I can, but it's forcing me to rethink that because um, I, I do think that I'm more effective. She does think she's more effective than the school, but what about socialization? And so I just have to kind of nip that in the bud. We're talking about education. We're not talking about socialization. So that should take a second tier to the conversation about education. If our highest desire for our children is education, then socialization is but a secondary portion of that. So. The other thing is, 
Why are we thinking that by sticking our child in a room full of other children his or her age, somehow he will magically become socialized? When th the reverse could be, could be true as well. He will become bullied and it will be the worst experience of his life. There are no guarantees. So the socialization question, I have to dispel it right away. Um, it's sad to me that uh, I've talked to so many teachers who say to me, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, educate my kids at home. I couldn't homeschool. I could never do that. I would kill them by Wednesday. And those are teachers. Those are people who are teaching your children in school. Like I, I, I wonder at that. And I wonder at their feeling of incompetence when they've been educated in the system. And I wonder at our feeling of incompetence when we've come out of that system. And then I wonder at how divorced we've become from logic to think that as inadequate as we feel, the best place for our child would be to go back into the system that turned out the likes of us. So that's that's sort of my my whole thing. If you're if you're interested, go to the go to my YouTube channel. You can find me at samsorbo.com uh, because I I am trying to get this message out. And uh, thank you so much for having me today. Great, thank you, Sam. Okay, Robin, we'll hand it over to you now. All right, thanks so much. Um, it's great to be here with you all. I really appreciate in this very, um, well, uncharted territory, being able to cross uh, traditional boundaries and have these kinds of conversations. I'm gonna focus on um, shifting to the kind of um, public school, public school district and charter school world. Um, I, I live in Seattle and um, just to give you a little perspective, um, we've been thinking about this here for at least three weeks. And um, so I had the advantage or disadvantage of seeing how school districts in my area responded to the crisis. Um, I wanna say that um, uh, uh, one of the early responses here was a school district just north of Seattle who saw the writing on the wall, saw uh, what was happening internationally and said, we've got to get ready, we've got to get ready fast. Um, they did a very quick move to online learning, spent a day of teacher prep time, communicated with families about how to set things up, launched into delivering technology hotspots um, to families in need. Um, recognizing that it, things would not be perfect, but that something would be better than nothing. Um, uh, shortly after that, um, the state put out, um, well, this, actually um, previous to that, the state had put out guidance to school districts in my state saying, be really careful. If you can't do the same thing for every child, um, really don't go online, um, wait and let's see. Um, since that time, the school district that was out of head out had out ahead has actually closed down out out of um, this kind of guidance. And out of fear, I think of um, being out of compliance with federal law, state law, since there are so many different unknowns. And because there has been this message that's moved quickly throughout the country, um, that if we can't serve all kids the same way, we can't serve anyone. I just want to say for a moment that um, uh, this is a complicated um, issue. There is a lot of goodwill and reason to worry about equity right now. Um, a lot of communities are dealing with basic food safety issues, basic technology issues. And so first I want to recognize that that is a very legitimate concern. Um, one that I share around special needs and you know, a whole host of, of issues that we really have to um, not dismiss. On the other hand, I also wanna say that I reject the all or nothing frame. I just don't believe that doing nothing will, um, will help the most vulnerable kids. In fact, I think it will deepen inequalities. Uh, I know families who have kids with disabilities at home right now who uh, are really in despair because their kids are lacking the structure, the connection with teachers and friends that they could get through some sort of online connection with their schools, um, whose parents um, uh, have to work or just really can't oversee the kind of learning or the kinds of enrichment opportunities that that we just um, we just heard about before. And so, um, 
to me, uh, standing still is the most dangerous thing we can do right now through the public sector. And we've got to think about um, moving beyond kind of a two week frame into the reality that this could be a marathon for our schools. We don't know how long this will last at this point. We don't know when schools will need to prepare for another wave of emergency closures and all. So, um, so here we are. Um, I uh, have been collecting data through my organization. We've published a database showing what districts are doing right now and what charter management organizations are doing right now. The bottom line is that most are, are treading very cautiously um, and slowly. However, um, many of them are now um, really gearing up to think about creative new approaches and some are really out of head. So I'm excited to see what can come forward. Um, I'm excited about what I believe, is the, I believe in the power of people to solve problems. And I think educators are ready to launch in and think about creative solutions. There's a very exciting online educator network going on Facebook where educators are trading ideas about uh, what they can do. And importantly, I think partnering with families in fundamentally different ways than they have previously. So I think that you know we're about to see an explosion um, of interesting things happening, um, even within um, public school systems that are cautious um, and constrained in some ways, but ready to move forward. And thankfully, um, just recently, the Department of Education put out national guidance saying uh, there is no reason to um, to wait to go online, that federal disability laws and all can be accomplished through an online platform, and schools really should get going and get to work figuring that out. So, um, you know, um, we'll keep tracking what's happening on the district um, and charter school front. We're also really interested in seeing what kinds of interesting arrangements pop up, co-op-like supports that homeschool families have always enjoyed um, are starting to organize and, and take hold out there. I'm seeing some really interesting community-led solutions popping up around um, potentially providing um, directed tutoring and partnerships with, um, with experienced evidence-based um, literacy programs and things with families. Uh, Lofi private schools, I think, may start to emerge. So, um, you know, from my perspective, it's exciting to look across the spectrum of different kinds of ideas and provisions, and especially with an eye toward where are the creative solutions for the kids who most need our, our help right now. And um, I'll just close by saying that I was speaking to a community advocate yesterday who said to me, we're working to you know, make sure our families have food safety, economic safety, and then we're gonna turn our attention not to continuity of learning, but acceleration of learning. Now is the time for us to really think about how we can start closing achievement gaps, showing what's possible in partnership with traditional systems um, where that's possible, but also community-led solutions that are opening up right now. Thanks very much for the opportunity to join you. That's fantastic. Thank you, Robin. Really appreciate that. Um, if the viewers, if the audience have questions, uh, you'll note, you should be able to see a little box with a question mark in it. Uh, please submit your questions in that little box. Uh, I think there's also a raise your hand function. Don't use that function, use the little question box if you wanna send them in to us and we'll get to those questions at the end. <laughs> um, Right, well, before moving on to, to Derek, I did have a question. I don't know who might uh, be best to answer this, maybe Carrie or, or Sam or Robin, but uh, homeschooling co-ops right now and micro schools, what do you think, are we gonna see a growth in those options in particular long-term? Is this um, something that's gonna have sort of deep-seated feasibility? Or are we gonna see more families moving in the co-op direction in particular? I can answer that uh, initially. Yes, I think already we were seeing a lot of momentum toward hybrid homeschooling models and these uh, self-directed learning centers and micro schools. 
that make homeschooling uh, that much more accessible to more families so that homeschooling becomes the legal lever, the regulatory uh, lever to open up a lot of freedom and flexibility for families, but allow children to be in a, a, a learning center or some other kind of organization or micro school for a portion of the week, enabling parents to work or single parents to be able to choose the homeschooling option. So I think we're gonna see uh, dramatic acceleration in that area. I think Lindsay, in one of your recent articles, you wrote about Prenda Microschool and that fast growing network. Uh, I think those kinds of networks are going to continue to bloom uh, during this pandemic and after. Yeah, and just from the, the public perspective, I, um, I've been playing with the idea for a long time that organizations like Workspace Education in Connecticut that provide you know, really interesting um, supports for um, homeschool families and grow micro schools and curate programs for families to try to solve whatever problem they present um, could be translated into the public school um, realm in really interesting ways through kind of navigator organizations and even schools that are designed to support and guide students um, passion development and, and a portfolio of learning opportunities and oversee that coherently and even be accountable for results to government. That's great. Great. Well, with that, we'll hand it over to Derek to talk a little bit about uh, the private school perspective and how you're navigating this new normal. Yeah, thanks, Lindsay. <clears throat> Uh, just as background, my name is Derek Max. Uh, I founded uh, Cornerstone School of Washington, D.C. Uh, with some friends 21 years ago. Uh, we're a kindergarten to 12th grade program. Uh, our elementary uh, program is uh, based loosely on the Charlotte Mason approach. And then our middle and high school, we're a classical school where they'll read the great books and uh, you know, wisdom and virtue, uh, right thinking and right living. Um, our students are primarily, primarily uh, east of the river here in Washington, D.C. Uh, so it's a low-income community. 90% of our students uh, would be considered uh, eligible for free and reduced lunches. Uh, not typically your, your homeschool uh, population. Um, that being said, my wife and I uh, both homeschooled all of our children. I have four kids in college right now. All of them are homeschooled. Uh, two of them actually never went to a school, uh, so college was an interesting experience for them. Um, and I don't think they ever thought that they would be doing homeschool college, but now they're all doing homeschool college. So uh, they were better prepared, I think, than their classmates for uh, what is happening right now. Um, I can just tell you from my perspective, uh, you know, we were blessed by having uh, a young staff, uh, many of whom themselves were homeschooled. Uh, and so when the call came that we might have to close the school, we had some teachers step up, um, start to organize meetings with students and other teachers and really figure out a way not to do Cornerstone at home, uh, but to learn at home uh, in, in what is kind of a modified homeschool environment. Uh, so we were blessed by that. We were blessed by uh, some donors getting us some Chromebooks uh, so that our teachers would be able to communicate with their kids at home. Uh, fortunately, most students, even from low-income families, have access uh, to broadband internet. Uh, most of them just needed help with devices. We were able to get them uh, to them. Um, we we're also blessed that our school is discussion-based. Uh, that being a classical school, our kids are encouraged to take ownership of their education. So, you know, our kids are used to uh, leading discussions and reading on their own and, and thinking on their own and uh, doing projects that are self-directed. Um, so really the homeschool model uh, isn't far off from what they've been doing in school. We, we view Cornerstone as a family. Uh, now they're just a family that's, uh, you know, not in our building for a little bit. Um, the other thing that I think we're blessed with is our teachers said, because uh, I, I was initially thinking we should take a week off, get ourselves set, figure this out. And our teacher said, look, if we don't start right away, we lose them. Uh, so let's just set up day one, let's set up deadlines, let's set up ways to meet with the kids, uh, and let's set the bar high, uh, get them all the materials they need. And we sent them home with packets of books and, and, and things, but um, it's really been encouraging. I would say uh, in our entire high school, we probably only have one or two students uh, that aren't you know, keeping up. Uh, and I, I think it has to do with technology. We're working on that. 
Um, even in our younger grades, uh, our kids are involved, uh, you know, the teachers are using Zoom and uh, Google Classroom and all these free resources that are available. Uh, and they're sending screenshots of their classes with their kids and reading books together. Um, and even, even the culture of Cornerstone, you know, we're, we're a school that believes strongly uh, in loving one another the way uh, Christ loves us. Um, and we've even been able to see some of the chats the kids are doing with each other. I'll just give you one anecdote. A teacher sent a note to one student who had helped another student with uh, their math homework. And she said, you know, I'm really proud of you for you know, stepping in and helping like that. And one of the other students in the class wrote a chat that said to that other student, you have such a kind heart. Uh, and you know, that's kind of what it's all about. We want our kids to love each other, to encourage each other. And even when they're out of our building, we want them to live that, uh, to model that, to be that. Um, and for our, you know, like, like Robin was saying, for our families, you know, food security, um, safety in the neighborhoods with all the public schools out, um, you know, our parents, you know, some of them uh, aren't high school educated. Um, for some of our families, this is a really difficult uh, time. Um, and what we're trying to do as best as we can uh, is make uh, education not be one of those added stresses for them. Um, and make sure that our students know that they can do this. Uh, they have the tools, uh, you know, we've taught them to love good books, to love learning, um, and, and they can and they are, and they are doing at home. Uh, you know, we do stress the longer this goes on, uh, the more difficult I think this becomes. But uh, again, I think the key to us, uh, as opposed to I've seen a lot of the public schools around here, uh, is we just started right off so that the kids didn't get out of the, the habit uh, of learning. We've also set up uh, their their day so that, you know, they have noon deadlines and, and four o'clock deadlines so that, so that they know they got to get up and they got to, you know, <laughs> eat their breakfast and, and start their classes. Um, but they also know uh, that, you know, should something happen, you know, care of one of their siblings or, or illness, or whatever, that they can, you know, Zoom meet with a teacher anytime uh, and, and we're able to help them. Uh, so that's kind of where, where we are. Uh, you know, I, I do hope and pray that uh, more families will, will take uh, ownership of their education. Uh, our kids can't afford to miss a quarter of a year or half a year. Um, and so we're doing everything we can to keep them on pace. You know, our kids get into good colleges. Uh, obviously our seniors are a little stressed right now, but uh, we got to keep doing what we can do to prepare them uh, and to empower them and their families to know that this is something a lot of families do. Uh, educating at home is, is a, has a, a great tradition. Uh, and the more our kids learn to do that, the better they will be even when they come back to Cornerstone. That's great. Thank you, Derek. Um, so we have lots and lots of questions from our viewers. I'll throw a few out. Um, anybody who wants to answer this, Derek, this might be of interest to you. It's a parent in Washington, D.C. of a ninth grade student who is currently at a STEM high school. And he asked what are the do's and don'ts that he should be observing as he works at the kitchen table next to his son, given that he's not getting a lot of direction from the district system right now. Well, again, I think first of all, he's just got to take ownership of it himself. Uh, I do think as you know, homeschool parents, those of us who did homeschool, we told all of our kids, go home. The first thing we told them was find a place to do your work uh, and make it a consistent place. Um, have your material laid out, uh, have your day planned, um, and then take ownership of it. Um, I have been shocked at the number of resources that were already available free but I get emails literally 10 and 15 times a day from organizations, great organizations, uh, who used to charge fees for their material that are now saying, look, just use our stuff. Um, our teachers are utilizing a lot of different materials that we never really had access to. You know, we're, we're a private Christian school in a low-income community, so income and expenses are, are difficult for us. Um, but we're literally able to use resources that we, you know, we've always dreamed of using uh, that now we can use and try out for free. Um, but I would tell that student, just take ownership of it, go online, you'll be amazed the number of uh, physics and science and chemistry experiments you can see online. Uh, you know, don't blow up your house, but uh, you know, you can find things in your house to do uh, experiments um, and, and just be creative and, and also don't panic. Uh, at the end of the day, um, if, you're, if you're diligent and trying, you're gonna learn what you need to, what, what you need to learn. Yeah, and I'll just yeah, add yeah. that, uh, 
this is an opportunity for parents to see what the children are learning in school. And so I would encourage parents to take the time that you are now spending at home and spend a little extra time being be having access to what's coming through the internet at your child from the school system. Because you might say, wow, I can't believe they're teaching this stuff. This is the greatest stuff ever. ever. Or you might say, huh, I did not realize that they were going to teach my child this. And maybe I'm not okay with that. And we, um, you know, as education moves more and more online, I'm hearing from parents more and more that they do not have access to the curriculum. Um, you know, we just had a, a, an enormous thing out in California where the California said, we are putting this curriculum in. You may not object to it. You may not pull your child out and we will not tell you when we're teaching it. Uh, so you're, you're, getting, you're getting a glimpse, you're getting a little bit extra control right now that you wouldn't otherwise have. So you can, you can uh, take advantage of that. that that's great. I uh, would definitely second that, Sam. Take this opportunity to really dig into the content that your, your kids are learning in school and to, to take a second look at some of that curriculum. Um, great. Well, so a couple of other questions are coming in. Uh, actually, quite a few other questions are coming in. We have one um, from Jenny who says some parents might feel like they need to replicate the nine to three school day or some sort of close equivalent. She asked whether there's an amount of time per day that you would all recommend for instruction and schoolwork and assumes that would vary by age. So I, I'm sure that I Carrie would weigh that. in on this, but I'm jump in just give me a sec Go ahead, Sam. Yeah. it is a misnomer to think that a school day of learning must be you know whatever the seven and a half hours is and in fact homeschoolers will tell you that three hours is plenty for grade school for the most part and a little bit more than that when they get into the upper grades and then and then yes as you as you become more adult you can handle a full day of class but the fact is that there's a lot of time that's wasted in school, lining up for things and uh, preparing to go do something else and, and that kind of thing that you skip when you're, when you're educated at home. So don't, do not try to replicate school at home. Don't try to replicate your version of what you think the classroom is at home. Go for the target. The target is education. The target is learning. So go for the learning. If it takes your child, half an hour to complete the work, great. Then they just bought themselves an extra half hour where maybe the work takes an hour for the other child, right? So be flexible in that. And Carrie, I know you I know you wanted to, to weigh in. No, I couldn't say it any better, Sam. It, um, I think families will be surprised to discover how quickly they can get through curriculum content uh, without all of those distractions in school, which leaves a lot of this unstructured time to pursue interests and uh, make new discoveries given all of these digital resources. And my favorite story that's emerged through this pandemic that I think provides some perspective is uh, the story of Isaac Newton, who um, was a college, young college student in England, in London, during the bubonic plague in the 17th century. And he fled for self-isolation uh, back to his childhood home in the countryside and ended up making some of the most incredible scientific discoveries of his career during what he called his year of or what was called his year of wonders he discovered calculus he discovered gra gravity he discovered a theory of optics um, so it was an incredible productive time that he would personally reflect upon as being um, one of the most uh, intense intellectual experiences of his life. And I think it's just a, a way of, of acknowledging that this could be a moment for all of us, parents and children alike, separating from our routines um, to really nurture creativity and imagination. And we could find that we are able to produce more and create more uh, than we ever thought possible. Great, thanks, Carrie. So setting Good the bar point. really high, we're all gonna discover things on par with calculus and uh, gravity, <laughs> so that's great. Uh, so some other questions coming in. I think, Robin, this might be one that you wanna tackle. Um, sort of parallel questions um, of the districts that responded quickly in Washington State, what did they do effectively? 
And then are there other states that you think might be handling the transition well right now? Yeah, um, I'll just um, point folks because um, you know the, there's a lot to explore there. If people really want to dig in, um, it's CRPE, Center on Reinventing Public Education.org. Um, and uh, so that's there. Um, of the districts that moved most quickly, they, um, I think they had two things going for them. One, they had um, quite a bit of experience with technology and using online platforms, not in a very complicated way, really just, you know, did the kids have Chromebooks? Was there some sort of online learning information system like Canvas, Schoology, um, and some of the more sophisticated organizations like um, Summit Learning, they have an online platform that has all their curriculum loaded on where students can self-pace already. Um, and so you know, having that kind of infrastructure in place and having broadband access available made it pretty simple and they didn't overcomplicate it, just sort of, you know, teachers, take your lessons, adapt them and go online. Don't worry too much about this explosion of resources right now, just do what you did. Um, uh, and that's not, you know, super easy, but they, they helped and gave some planning time. And then the other interesting dynamic was many districts, uh, especially in Florida, um, had already experienced emergency closure through hurricanes and such. And so Miami-Dade is a good, good example of um, a school district that was ready to roll very, very quickly with a pretty sophisticated emergency learning plan. I'm sure they're learning and adapting, you know, as they look into a longer time frame. But those are some of the things that allow districts to move pretty quickly. That's great. Thank you. Um, Derek, this might be something that you can address, although anybody feel free to chime in. But we have a question from Gwen, who's with the Connecticut Parents Union. And she asks, do you have recommendations on working with families that don't necessarily have the technology that they need right now? Um, is there something we can do to meet their distance learning needs if they don't have that tech already in place? Yeah, you know, there's so many things available right now that are uh, easy to do. You know, I, I always tease my wife as, you know, the prime example of my wife can get on Zoom, anyone can get on Zoom. Um, there's so many ways uh, for families to connect. Uh, and even in low-income communities, you know, broadband internet is, is, is everywhere. Um, and so our families have, have pretty seamlessly been able to get online, um, have Zoom meetings with their class, um, get walked through the material that was sent home with them, uh, pray with them. Uh, and also the number of students that are doing, um, you know, calling their teacher for tutoring and help and assistance, uh, it's pretty remarkable. You know, we, we're able to see uh, all the communication between teachers and students, uh, and it's amazing uh, to see uh, some of our kids who are struggling uh, going ahead and getting online and, and, and using that resource uh, to get the extra help they need. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but there, you know, there, there's a lot of people like to think that, um, you know, the low income communities, um, can't do, they can't do this. We have to do this for them. Uh, and the truth is, um, they can do it. Uh, there are resources. They can take ownership. Yes. It's more difficult. Yes. There will be more challenges. Yes. They won't have the tutoring of a mom who maybe has a, a PhD herself or a, a master's degree, but. By golly, you know, some of our greatest minds in this country were self-educated, uh, whose parents might have been slaves or parents might have uh, been poor themselves. You can do this. Um, and also not to panic. You know, at those younger ages, man, if you're reading uh, and counting out, you know, every now and then and doing a little bit of math in your head, uh, you're going to be fine. Um, and as your curiosity grows as you age, you're, you're going to be fine. Uh, it's the upper age that, you know, if they have the self-determination, um, in this world of, of everything at our fingertips, they can give themselves a great education. So I'll, I'll, just, I'll just weigh in for just a minute. You know, we, we tend to take the education paradigm that we learned in school and try to apply it and try to meet that. And so that's actually, I, I, think, I think most of us agree public education is sort of broken uh, so if that's our paradigm, why are we shooting for broke, like shooting for broken, like 
you 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 can untether yourself we're all a little bit untethered right now from what was our prior reality and you can untether from your prior reality of education and figure out new things on your own so i, I love that he points out that you know if you're doing a little bit of math with your kids get the penny jar out and start counting pennies and start manipulating the penny right with little kids if you're doing some reading with them and goodness you know take out the bible and read the Bible and then challenge them to read the Bible to you and make a game out of it and do voices. And if it's not the Bible, pick another book, you know. Um, those are all learning experiences. Bake a cake. That is a learning experience. Putting uh, putting recipe ingredients together and seeing how they interact and what is baking soda for and stuff like that. That's all learning. So you don't have to have it in a textbook and uh, you know, follow the directions of the textbook in order to to be that. And I love the fact that he that he pointed out that parents don't need a PhD to be the child's tutor. Uh, ben Ben Carson's mother is a great example. She couldn't read, and yet she taxed him with with tasked him with writing an essay on a book that he took out of the library. I think it was every month is the, is the story that I remember. She couldn't even read it. She just required it of him. So th there are a lot of different ways to uh, to get this done, and uh, we just need to step a little bit outside the standard paradigm and and figure it out. And your child is unique, so just because there is a standard paradigm doesn't mean that your child fits it either. So, so I just um, want to make one quick point, which is um, I, I agree that this is an opportunity to look outside the standard paradigm, and and I'm excited to see what comes of that. I also want to just be careful um, on the, um, you know, kind of passing too quick, quickly judgment on the the system, uh, the public school system. I I think right now people um, people are really um, feeling vulnerable, um, afraid, and looking for um, institutions that can help. Um, many of our public school districts really are providing a fundamental service right now and distributing food, um, checking in with families, um, getting them uh, into learning situations as quickly as possible, um, and public school teachers that are just dying to get back in touch with their kids. So, you know, for me, um, look, you know, I don't have any allegiance to any particular institutions, but I'm a pragmatist. Like, wh whoever's got something to offer right now should dig in. Yeah, very, very good. Um, Derek, I think you had something to add to that. Yeah, I, I agree with Robin, uh, except uh, maybe in the areas of, uh, you know, around Cornerstone, uh, Anacostia High School, Blue High School. You know, D.C. public schools literally instituted a no suspension policy. Uh, so kids who are disruptive, fighting, bringing guns to schools, they can't be suspended. They can't be expelled. Uh, there's so little learning happening. If someone pulls uh, a fire alarm at Anacostia High School before uh, 12 o'clock, they cancel school because they can't get the students back through security quick enough to have any time to do learning for the rest of the day. Uh, I think one of the benefits that could come out of this is that there's a lot of kids trapped in those schools uh, who are going to experience school at home and taking ownership of their education and their parents are going to see them learning and I, I think some of those students are going to say to themselves, why am I going to a school where no one's showing up for class and the kids who are showing up for class are being disruptive and the teachers, you know, something like 40% of the public school teachers uh, here, not the charter schools, the regular public school teachers didn't finish the school year. I mean, the numbers are astounding uh, in the district. I could see a, a parent and a kid saying, look, I can do better. I'm doing better at home. Give me an opportunity to do this myself. Uh, and maybe now that they're having to experience it, maybe someone will, will try it. I totally agree with Robin. There are a lot of great teachers, even in those schools who are trying and wanting to do their best. But sadly, I, I can only report to you what I, what I see and what I hear from students that are coming from those schools. Those schools are fundamentally broken. Uh, and this may be an opportunity for some kids to escape that wouldn't have had an opportunity to escape otherwise. I do think no. we're in agreement and I won't belabor it. Um, you know, now is not the time to protect anything that isn't working, but it's a time to look for assets that are available and think about how we can leverage them. I agree. Yeah. I just want to point out, um, a friend of mine sent me a video that their public school put out to all the parents and the kids. 
and they had very nicely edited all of these teachers in and the principal came in and she made a nice little statement to the students and how difficult times were right now and that they were all working to try to figure stuff out and all the teachers came on and they all expressed love for their students and most of them said you know i'm here at the lake and i'm just hanging out but i'm really missing my students and i just want to point out if the focus of education is to educate then why does the focus seem to be elsewhere all the time i i go into this in my book not all the time i don't mean to speak in in extremes but i go into this in my book i i enrolled my child in a small school after i had homeschooled for a while because i felt so inadequate and when i went to meet with the teacher towards the end of the first six weeks to make sure that he was you know doing his work and keeping up and learning and doing everything, she spent five minutes telling me how well behaved he was. And I realized that her focus was the behavior of my child. I know that my child's well behaved. My focus is his education. And so I wonder that we satisfy, that we as parents are satisfied when the focus turns towards something other than education. Uh, I, I know that there are students out there who need to be served food but I thought we're here to discuss education. So that's that's my focus. If we want our students to be educated, and I do, then I think we should, we should focus on that. And that's what the school should focus on too. Great, so I wanna, um, two questions we've got, one um, for Robin specifically, and one for Carrie specifically. Um, Robin, so this question comes from Evelyn. She says that, um, Robin, you mentioned the all or nothing approach could actually deepen inequalities. She says she thinks that's true across many areas, especially in education. Could you say more about how that might happen and how to prevent it? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, so um, while um, a lot of our urban school districts are closed, I can guarantee you um, that what's happening out there is parents with the means are getting online and finding or purchasing whatever their child will need to keep uh, getting ready for the SAT, <laughs> for example, uh, if they're available to take, um, getting ready for college applications, um, accelerating, finding tutoring um, programs to you know keep moving ahead at a rapid pace. Uh, suburban districts, as I mentioned, that you know already had a lot going on technology will keep moving forward. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Kids should keep learning. This is the time to do that. Um, but the most vulnerable kids, um, kids with disabilities, kids who were already behind a couple, three, four grade levels, um, cannot afford to have everybody moving ahead while they stay still. In fact, as my, my friend um, in a, a local community pointed out, now is the time to accelerate those students' learning if possible. And that really should be our goal um, while they have one-on-one -on -one relationships with their family or an auntie or whoever is available. Let's figure out how to really leverage that and provide them some phonics tutoring or you know whatever is going to get them up to um, a space where they can go back into a large classroom and be more successful. So that's the divide I see. And I'm particularly attuned to the disability community here. Really, um, there's so much anguish for kids who um, don't do well without a lot of social interaction or who don't do well without a lot of structure and aren't getting the kinds of um, interventions, occupational therapy or whatever that they ought to be getting right now. And we know that is possible. It's all possible to do, so let's get on it. Can, can you say a little bit more about that for kids with special needs in particular, how online learning can, can meet their needs, particularly when it comes to things like occupational therapy, behavioral yeah. therapy? Yeah, I've been um, um, asking people on Twitter and such for examples of that. So there are some examples flying around, but occupational therapists are getting, um, speech therapists are getting very, very creative if there is some sort of technological connection or even picking up the phone um, and talking to families about what kinds of exercises they can do at home, uh, where they can find resources online for their kids and even de delivering some of those services virtually. Um, you know, the, the, the lots of possibilities there. And there are some kids of course um, who 
really excel um, in a really structured kind of computer-based environment and who are finding the online platforms really exciting and really clear and concrete so they can you know know how to how to move forward they have less distractions maybe in a class than in a classroom with a lot going on so you know there's just an incredible amount of variation and i think to points that were raised earlier now is the time to think about individualization truly in special education where i think we haven't done that really even though every student is entitled to an individualized education plan they're often not and so i think all of this time is going to shine a spotlight into the fact that we need to think about special education completely differently yeah yeah agreed Great, thank you. Carrie, we've got a question for you specifically. How can unschooling and self-directed education best be implemented given the rapid transition? And then related, what are the unique advantages to implementing self-directed education? Right, well, I think this is an extraordinary moment to disentangle education from schooling and look at other ways to be educated. Um, as we've been saying throughout this hour, never before have we had such an abundance of digital tools for free uh, that will open up so many windows and doors to different interests and experiences for young people and for families that have never existed before. Uh, so I think it's really seizing that moment, seizing this extraordinary experience for ourselves and our children um, watching some of these videos together or exploring some of these virtual museums together, um, reading ebooks that are now available through your library together. Uh, you know, I think this is a way of encouraging uh, young people to continue to pursue their own interests through self-education. Uh, it's really um, a time to disconnect again from kind of the standardized curriculum and instead uh, see this incredible way of learning through curiosity uh, and experimentation. Um, I think that one of the things that often happens is we see that young people, young children are incredibly curious and imaginative and creative. And often when they enter a standardized classroom, that begins to be eroded and they lose that sort of natural zest for learning and discovery that young children um, often display. And so this is a chance to really enable kids to reconnect with those curiosities, that imagination, uh, explore these other interests and resources, and hopefully open up um, lots of new opportunities for them um, that will that they'll take with them for years to come. That's great. Well, I think we have time for one more question, and I think this is a good one to end on. So if you could uh, each give a little insight, but what books are you recommending to students right now? Any favorites uh, that you think they should be reading? Well, right now I'm reading um, a biography of Isaac Newton out loud to my 11-year-old. <laughs> so, you know, that's uh, something that's top of mind for us. That's great. I love that. I Anybody know, else? I know our high schoolers are, uh, uh, we have a class doing C.S. Lewis's uh, screw tape letters. Uh, I think it's a great book. I think it's uh, a good read uh, for students. I think the wit and, and insights into man, uh, it, it would be helpful during this time. That's great. I would also suggest the Bible. I know that's like an easy one, but uh, goodness knows they don't ever read the Bible in public school. So that would be my suggestion. It's also the greatest history book that we have, so covers two Any subjects. Well, my kids actually are in school. Um, they have been for three weeks. They're they're in a private school that went online almost immediately. So um, thankfully, because I've been working much more than full time uh, <laughs> down in our in our basement, they are upstairs right now um, getting direction from their teachers about their regular curriculum. And um, I honestly don't know what reading um i just uh but i trust absolutely that they're uh, they're doing great work 
That's great. And Carrie had mentioned earlier about resources that are online, books that are online. Check out Project Gutenberg. They have put 60,000 books online that um, where their copyrights have expired. And so they can just put them up immediately. You can read the full book in e-version. So a good additional resource if you're looking for some reading material. Well, I want to thank all of our panelists. This was fantastic. I learned so much from each of you, Robin and Sam and Carrie and Derek. Really appreciate you all being there. I'll give one final plug to check out the Heritage Foundation's Curriculum Resource Initiative. We also have a page dedicated on heritage.org specifically dealing with the coronavirus. You can look at those broader policies there as well. Thanks to all of our viewers for joining us and thanks again to, to our speakers. Thank you. Thanks, Lindsay.